This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portio. My name is Andrew Carroll. Uh, today we are discussing Willem. I'm something of a character actor myself. Defoe. The post-2000 years. Uh, the 2000s started off strong for Defoe with an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Max Schreck in the film Shadow of the Vampire. It was his role as Norman Osborn, a.k.a. the Green Goblin, in 2002's Spider-Man that made him one of the 21st century's best-known character actors. In 2004, Defoe began a three-film co- collaboration with Wes Anderson, beginning with the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. His rarely used comedic talents were put to the test in Mr. Bean's Holiday when he played pretentious actor-director Carson Clay. His output has only increased as he's gotten older with seven films in 2009, including Lars von Trier's Antichrist and Werner Herzog's My Son, My Son, What Have Ye Done? 2014 had him either star or support in the likes of John Wick, Pasolini, The Fault in Our Stars, The Grand Budapest Hotel and The Most Wanted Man. His third Best Supporting Actor nomination still with zero wins, at the Oscars, <laughs> came in 2014 for his role as a beleaguered hotel manager in The Florida Project. In 2018, his notable films included Aquaman and At Eternity's Gate, the latter of which earned him the Volpe Cup at Venice, and his first Best Actor nod for his role as Vincent van Gogh. In 2019, he appeared in Edward Norton's Motherless Brooklyn and Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. His forthcoming projects include Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch and Guillermo del, Tar- del Toro's Nightmare Alley. Yeah, so we split Defoe into two parts because he's he's just appeared in too many great films for one episode, yeah, and uh, we true. thought we thought his filmography was diverse and interesting and vast enough to uh, provide enough content for two episodes. And I, I think preparing for this, we were we were definitely proved right. Um, yeah. <laughs> in terms of his post two thousands work, I feel Defoe had amassed such a strong reputation and goodwill by the turn of the millennia that he could pretty much do whatever he wanted for the rest of his career, with the exceptions of like maybe doing a triple X2 State of the Union or an yeah. Aquaman or a John Carter for cash every couple of years. And even the, yeah. some of them have artistic merit, like to, to yeah. varying degrees. I, I think that's a lot more freedom than most character actors get. And I feel like a spy, just getting Spider-Man and playing Norman Osborn, this like iconic villain, um, even cemented that reputation further like enable yeah. him just to do more um do you want to talk a little bit about that so he plays norman osborn as you said uh, the ceo of oscorp but he's also but he also becomes the supervillain known as the green goblin who's out to kill spider-man played by the most wooden actor to have ever existed toby Maguire, who he doesn't realize is also his son harry's best friend you killed them we killed them we remember a little accident in the laboratory. The performance enhancers. Bingo. Me. Your greatest creation. Bringing you what you've always wanted. Power beyond your wildest dreams. And it's only the beginning. Yeah, I think he's just one of the few parts of, the, of those movies that have aged really well. Like, I think the villains are... Uh, pretty consistently good until you get to number three. All three of them had J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson, uh, so you can you can you can never really fault them for that. And they're kind of movies that like are caught between kind of like the the rich, really visual feasts that were like the '90s Batman films, and then as you get 
further into um, the 2000s, you have the porridge that was that is the MCU. Just this grey, lifeless, dull mass that just sits in a bowl. And, like, I think he really has his... He gets, he gets his own personal Gollum moment in, like, this kind of dual role he has as Norman Osborn, the caring father, and Green Goblin, the violent psychopath. And I think he's probably the best villain the all of the Marvel that all of the Marvel Marvel movies have. It it almost seems unfair to put such a young, mostly inexperienced cast next to someone who is who by the, at this stage had been working for twenty years roughly since uh, the Loveless came out. It was actually yeah, this is twenty I suppose twentieth anniversary of screen acting in two thousand two. He really is just magnetic. His like really rugged, craggy features just make everyone else look like they've been put through motion smoothing. Yeah, um, I haven't seen the original Spider-Man since I was a kid. I, I loved them when I was younger, even the third one. Um, I remember though that the Thanksgiving scene with Willem Dafoe is really something special, and is <laughs> it's like great a great comedy, but he's so menacing as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what he said about it. That's what it, like kind of appealed to him about it is that. Within a line, he'd just changed from being like very, very funny to incredibly dark and menacing. And I think that's what he enjoyed about it the most. Mm. Like his repeated cameos in the second one and the third one as like a vision to his son. And it, it really just demonstrates exactly what those movies and as well as the later MCU movies are missing, which is like a like they've had a villain problem ever probably ever since Jeff Bridges played whatever your whatever the ball dude's name was in Iron Man One. And, you know, no no performance ever equals, I offered you friendship and you spat in my face. <laughs> it's true. And I love how in Spider-Man 2 and 3, his, his appearances are almost like Shakespearean. They're like the ghosts <laughs> that will appear to like, like Hamlet or something, yeah, yeah, you know, like, absolutely. they're great. Um, we, we talk about Shadow of a Vampire. Yeah, I wasn't a fan. Um, I tried to watch it a couple of years ago because it sounded it sounds really interesting because um, it's about like Nosferatu, the first vampire film ever made, and Willem Dafoe plays Max Schreck, who played Count Orlock in uh, the original Nosferatu in 1922. I think the problem is the script. Really, it's, it's it's a film full of great actors, which is really let down by a hammy kind of unsubtle script because you got John Malkovich as F. W. Murnau, the very famous expressionist. Uh, German director. You have Willem Dafoe as Count Orlock. You have Udo Kier as the producer. You have Carrie Ells as uh, the cinematographer who replaces the one that um, <laughs> uh, Willem Dafoe kills. And it feels like it needs Werner Herzog or something. But he'd already remade Nosferatu in 1979. So it just feels like a waste of time. Like, why bother is my opinion on it. And seeing the work behind German Expressionist cinema in colour and at a higher frame rate just it feels unnatural and mm. it also feels unnecessary I think he has a line uh, Willem Dafoe has a line in it where he's talking about like because he's a very, a very old vampire and uh, can't make new vampires which is I guess supposed to be tragic in its own way but it's hard to kind of do that when he's like so his iconic face is just so restricted by the mask and makeup he's wearing and I feel like they, it would have been better if he uh, had swapped roles with John Malkovich. I think it would have been better had he played F.W. Murnau and Malkovich, who was already who was already bald, 
played uh, yeah, Max Shrek. Or I hadn't thought of that. I, re- I remember loving Defoe as Max Shrek, but um, when you said that on Letterboxd, it kind of blew my mind a little. I was like, <laughs> yeah, that makes so much more sense. They should yeah. have totally done that. I do like how it's it's a movie that is basically an adaptation of Dracula, but set on the set of a Dracula movie. Like yeah. Everything that happens in yeah. it is what happens in the book. And also... I like how it's a, like, a satire of the maniacal director who will, you know, is willing to let people die to realize yeah. his vision. I've never yeah. taken that. Was kind of, it was kind of meta before Phil Lord and Chris Miller made that cool with you yeah, know, that's like, true. Twenty One yeah. Jump Street. Yeah. I, it's a bit of a, I, I imagine like maybe it doesn't hold up as well. But I remember when I was a teenager thinking like this is kind of gnarly and weird. Yeah, I feel like it needs to be more gnarly because it's not very violent. And yeah. I feel like you do kind of need that with a modern Dracula film. Defoe has a line where he says, I feed the way old men pee, sometimes all at once, sometimes drop by drop. And first of all, that feels like unnecessary for the script, unnecessary for the film, and just weird overall. <laughs> like, it feels like something you wouldn't say in the 1920s. Mm. Yeah. More consistency. Exactly, yeah. That's what yeah. the film needs. More violence, more consistency. There's, I saw this interview with Willem Dafoe where somebody asked him if he enjoyed the experience of making Aquaman, and it's, it's really funny, like, I have the quote here. Dafoe underwent a shocking transformation. His eyes curled into slits and darkened as his eyebrows melted into the mass below. He hunched forward and his tongue peered it out between a narrow bracket of teeth. It was an eerie, almost satanic vision. He relaxed and chuckled. You know what I like? He said. I like a movie where I work every day and have challenges pleasures and work the whole day then at night i go home and i'm tired and it's funny but like i feel like he's most enthused by you know working with these like in these very auteur driven movies but it also Mm. seems like he's really into artsy horror films and old-fashioned adult crime thrillers because that's what he spent a lot of his personal time making when he's not you know doing stuff for cash and like i think it's so funny that he's in like shadow of a vampire uh american psycho the lighthouse antichrist these movies which are horror movies but are a bit more kind of heightened and artistic elevated as they say yeah we talked a bit about american psycho and i guess i had dinner with victoria the following night personally i think the guy went along not so split town for a while maybe he did go to london sightseeing drinking whatever anyway i'm pretty sure he'll turn up soon or later i mean to think that one of his friends killed him for no reason whatsoever would be too ridiculous. <laughs> Isn't that right, Patrick? I think it's amazing direction that Mary Harron, she instructed Willem Dafoe to play each scene in three different styles. And it was, uh, yeah. um, you know, one is if he's suspicious of uh, Christian Bale, serial killer Patrick Bateman. Two is if he has no clue as to Bateman's guilt. And three is if he's undecided. And then Harren edited the takes together. And I feel like watching the movie, those movie, those scenes between him like interrogating Bateman really do have this sort of frisson of uh, like tension and just yeah. weirdness where you're like... Well, what is going on? Like, does he? Does this <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's really smart. Yeah, I think it's always the fact that because um, Christian Bale uh, apparently had a, had a, a lot of difficulty finding like who Patrick Bateman was inside, and a part of his performance is based on Tom Cruise. And <laughs> Bale described him as like this having this intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes. I think that's true for uh, Defoe as well because. You can tell that he plays the a private detective, uh, Donald Kimball, who's hired to find Paul Allen, who was murdered by 
the American psycho himself, Patrick Bateman. It's really obvious that Kimball is faking being friendly and that he's a lot better at it than Bateman is mm. and because Bateman works too hard to appear normal to really notice how anyone else is behaving around him. And I think like that, where when Kimball first appears is where is in uh, Patrick Bateman's office soon after the murder of, Ger- of uh, Paul Allen, who's played by uh, really, really scummy Jared Leto. Yeah. Um, and that's where things begin to slide in the movie for Bateman. And like he can't accept that he won't get away with his crimes, which just leads to his increased ferocity. Or does it? Is he even committing these crimes at all? Like you said, like the Kimball is suspicious of Bateman from the jump, and that's what led to Harren, like Mary Harren, putting these uh, three different takes together into some really incredible, incredible work by Defoe. And I think it can be hard to know what's real in the film, specifically after Kimball ends with it, because it's like, is he real or is he just a figment of Bateman, Bateman's guilty conscience? And I think that's left up to us to puzzle out. It's one of the many kind of things. It's one of those things that keeps me coming back to American Psycho. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. That's amazing. I just I love that office scene. It's so funny. <laughs> All the stuff about what he says about Yale people. Christian Bale would say something because he's been hanging too much with all these rich socialites and Willem Dafoe's like what are you talking about? <laughs> like he keeps having to like push him to get more information it's great. Will we talk about Inside Man? It's again that thing where Willem Dafoe will make these adult crime thrillers that don't tend to get made anymore in his spare time and he'll often take the smaller role in these things and I think it's really admirable because you know he's helping get these movies that I think a lot of adults now that are going to cinema feel a little bit like there's nothing really for me. Like it's just franchises, superheroes or like cheap horror yeah. movies. So he's helping get these movies made, especially since he was such a big part in the superhero boom. You know, not all the movies are great, but occasionally you'll get like a masterpiece like Inside Man. It's like a smaller role than he normally would play, but it's very in service of the movie. It's a Spike Lee film where Clive Owen robs a New York bank with Denzel Washington along with Chutel Legio for Willem Dafoe and some other great character actors doing hostage negotiation. And it's that great thing that happens when an established filmmaker makes a genre movie where they have, you know, the freedom to take like a really pretty good script and which is a match for their sensibilities and just like pick the right actors and flesh out the themes and elements that interest them and in the case of inside man what could be like a really solid hostage thriller becomes this amazing portrait of new york like not just the place but all the people involved in the heist the hostages the cops the bystanders watching the event unfold all feel very authentic it's this vibrant portrait of the shadowy back tour activity within the corridors of power like you have characters like christopher Plummer's bank owner who made his fortune collaborating with the nazis um his fixer played by an incredible jodie foster and even the cops and denzel washington's lead character uh this ultimately well-intentioned policeman who's begun taking shady steps to advancing his career and quality of life and uh who's and you start to like question like who's more moral the cop or the robber um and and you just really feel the enthusiasm of spike lee on screen managing to find a script that enables him to tackle all the things he's interested in race class new york life 
and it, it's similar in a way to his last couple of movies like Black Klansman and The Five Bloods in that respect. Yeah. And uh, in terms of Defoe, he plays this veteran police captain of the NYPD Emergency Services Unit, and it's it's not a pivotal role, but he brings great color because there's some very energetic scenes where he's briefing Washington on the hostage situation, and as they walk and talk, and Lee captures it on like dolly shots, and it really feels very fluid. And there's also this like very funny scene where Clive Owen's bank robber gives Denzel Washington a riddle. And Defoe, Edgy of Four, and uh, the great Ashley Atkinson, who is in uh, Black Clansman as well, and was recently Mr. Robot, who's awesome. It's like one of her earliest roles. She's really good. Um, they're trying to solve it, and they end up getting into a little argument over what trains go through Grand Central Terminal, even after the riddle has been solved. It's really funny. <laughs> it's the best. It's on Netflix. I remember I, I went to watch it at half one, thinking, I'll watch a half an hour of it. I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but I remember it the vague thing i ended up setting up to four watching it it was like flew by it was so good and i felt it in the morning after but it was worth it yeah yeah um do you want to talk about i guess life aquatic with steve zizou yeah he plays klaus daimler the german first mate to steve zizou who's played by bill murray who considers zizou a father figure and becomes jealous when zizou's actual son ned plimpton who's played by owen wilson shows up so yeah there's the first of uh defoe's collaborations with wes anderson uh soon to be Four, whenever the French Dispatch comes out. Maybe I can next year, we'll see. Uh, yeah, what Klaus is described as precise, reliable, German. He's got a very a be- much better German accent in this than he does in the Shadow of a Vampire, presumably because he doesn't have to wear a mask and teeth in it. I think he's maybe one of the most likeable characters in the film, even if he doesn't have the amount of screen time his character deserves. Um, because you know the, the film and all the characters really orbit around Steve Zissou, who is such an asshole and rampant homophobe that he comes across as the least likable. And even his even his rival, uh, who's played by um, Jeff Goldblum, comes across more likable than him. And like in any other film, Klaus would be the not necessarily the villain, but maybe like the traitor or rival to Ned. And because Suzu is such an asshole and rampant hope of hope to boot that he comes across as incredibly likable about halfway through the first act. And I think all of the little dialogue scenes and his um, role as resident chaplain of the Belafonte, which is Steve Suzu's ship, really makes him more and more likable as the film goes on. Like there's the sight gag of him just having a mohawk in the Arctic, um, <laughs> from which is from a flashback in one of their earlier documentaries. And then there's... Um, is a man desperate for like fatherly affection and never really clear but never really knows how to get it or accept it from a man who's as cavalier and uh, bitter as a zoo as he's really desperate to please this adoptive father figure even though he routinely misunderstands instructions and is better respected as an able seaman rather than the sensitive soul he is and uh, he is underneath but finds it hard to reveal that fact and like like there's the bit at the very end of the... Not the very end of the film, but like when they're trying to rescue um, the Bond company stooge that's been captured by Filipino pirates uh, in the third act. And Zizou is picking teams and the A team will be go in and rescue them while the B team uh, hangs back. And uh, Clive Steiner isn't picked for the A team and he just goes, thanks a lot for not picking me and turns around and has this really petulant like, <laughs> expression on his face, crosses his arms like a six-year-old boy who's been told to stand in the naughty corner. It's very good. <laughs> it's mad that Willem Dafoe has done everything because he's done horrors, he's done thrillers, he's done... And people... I wouldn't think of him as being... Um, 
overtly funny person, but he is mm. very funny playing these villains, and he's yeah. like a regular feature of Wes Anderson, who's like the yeah, most yeah. acclaimed comedy director. Like he's in Grand Budapest Hotel, the best comedy know, of yeah. the last twenty years, and, <laughs> and then he's in Mr. Bean as well. Do you want to talk yeah, about Mr. that Bean's comedy? With Mr. Bean's Holiday, I think they were really kind of repeating on past glories with that movie. Like a lot of the gags feel like feel like they've been done before, even if there's might be like a a little bit of a twist to them. Um, but yeah, Defoe plays Carson Clay, who's like this fiery actor director with a penchant for pretension and bombast, and his attempt at filming a yogurt commercial which features Nazis and massive explosions, and his Cannes premiere of a very kind of Paul Schradery, Darren Aronofsky, <laughs> uh, maybe even a little bit of David Fincher in there, kind of crime thriller is uh, ruined by Mr. Bean. Seeing, Def- seeing Defoe do comedy is a pretty rare thing, which is what makes his presence in this kind of film that feels by the numbers so enjoyable. And like I said, he's kind of an amalgamation of directors, kind of running gamut from Michael Bay to David Fincher to Darren Aronofsky to a little bit of Paul Schrader as well. And it it would almost feel cruel if the character wasn't so broad, because it really takes into it really um, just brings all these kind of stereotypes about directors into this one person. And and he, I think he gets some of the best jokes in the film because there's a bit at the Cannes premiere where he's um, watching his film in rapture like he has his hand on his face and he's always on the verge of tears as anything's happening while everyone around him is slowly falling asleep (laughs) (laughs) and like he's just doing this endless monologue on this endless elevator and when you think it's over it just reverses and he goes back down to the start of the elevator and starts saying more the best thing about it it's kind of like that airplane thing where Defoe plays Carson Clay straight um, positioning him as kind of this ordinary very intense man in a very extraordinary world where these things just keep going wrong for him and uh, but at the end you do kind of get the sense that he's he began the film as kind of over the hill and that uh, Mr. Bean's kind of uh, unintentional ruining of his premiere and the yoga commercial might have inspired him to uh, you know, maybe lighten up a bit. I like this idea of Mr. Bean being a Paddington type figure who helps <laughs> people grow. That's the, I'm trying to put a positive spin on it, but yeah. uh, I'm not sure if that actually happens. <laughs> um, will we go from Mr. Bean to Antichrist? Mr. Bean is kind of an Antichrist. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Feel the seat underneath you. Feel yourself sinking down into it, enfolding you. It's a nice feeling. All you feel is a pleasant warmth and heaviness. Imagine you're at Eden. Imagine you arrive at Eden through the woods. I promised myself after seeing Dancer in the Dark that I'd never watch another Lars von Trier movie. And I broke that promise when I bought Melancholy on Blu-ray. But uh, yeah, I don't think I'll ever watch Antichrist. To be honest, I was watching Antichrist thinking Andrew would fucking love this movie. Because it's so... (laughs) It's a lot in common with those um, Ari Aster movies like Hereditary and Midsommar. And very similar to... There's a lot of like kind of pagan folk horror in it. That movie is kind of overshadowed now. Its reputation now is kind of overshadowed by... First of all, by its extreme violence. And second of all, by the story that they had to use like a penis double for Defoe because his own was too big yeah terrifying (laughs) terrifying 
Um, I'll get into it anyway, but yeah, it's the first in Danish provocateur, uh, Lars von Trier's Depression Trilogy, along with Melancholia, which um, I love, I think is really great, and uh, Nymphomaniac, which we, I forgot about, we talked about in our Goth episode and also features Defoe. Yes, basically, while a couple are having sex, uh, their toddler falls out a bedroom window to his death. Uh, The wife, Charlotte Gainsbourg, collapses at the funeral and spends the next month in hospital, crippled with atypical grief. Her husband, Wim Dafoe, who's a therapist who does not believe antidepressants are going to help her and that the care she's receiving in hospital is helping. He checks her out and uh, in an isolated cabin in the woods called Eden, where the mother had spent a lot of time with her boy, attempts to treat her with psychotherapy. And uh, the mother had been working on a thesis about gynocide, which is the killing of women and girls. She was looking at violent portraits of witch hunts throughout history. And out of guilt and grief, she comes to believe that she herself and women are inherently evil. And the movie becomes then an extreme survival thriller. Yeah, this, as you said, the movie spawned a lot of controversy when it came out for its scenes of general mutilation. So trigger warning. But, but I do think it's really gripping. Um, I will say the parts of the movie I really love are the more domestic drama scenes of the early half. In a lot of ways, as Antichrist reminded me of Ari Aster's movies because of its you know, portraits of a fucked up family and the fact that Defoe is playing a male partner who is well-intentioned but also deeply flawed and, ambi- and yeah. oblivious. But I think, like, unlike Gabriel Byrne in Hereditary or Jack Rayner in Midsummer, and that's this isn't to criticize those performances because I think they work in the context of the movie around them but Defoe's character feels very multi-layered and a lot of yeah. that is on him like he and Gainsbourg really who's also incredible in the movie uh, she made me cry which I didn't expect to in a movie where the buzz around it is like it's so fucked up <laughs> <laughs> but they feel like a real bohemian artsy couple who have this primal sexual chemistry for each other uh, which I think the movie needs and Defoe is kind of an asshole in those scenes in the hospital where he thinks he's smarter than everybody else, but he has that selfless Jesus Christ energy where you really believe that he thinks that treating Gainsbourg is what's best for her, like him yeah. treating her, and that it's the right thing. And he's so tender in these therapy scenes and the way he cradles her when she starts having panic attacks. And while she accuses him of being a stereotypical absent father, his performance with him like contorting those lines of his face into yeah. a, a, a variety of like worried and concerned looks as he watches his wife mentally disintegrate. Like it, it makes him feel more than a, just a stock character. And we're really invested in his survival when things get weird and he sees a fox eating itself and saying chaos reigns, <laughs> which happens in the movie. As for the movie as a whole, well, I, I think those extremely violent scenes in the second half are for the most part important to the themes of the movie and feel a bit like an extension of them. Uh, I did have to fast forward them because of how brutal they are. I, I do think the sudden shift to this kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque uh, <laughs> survival horror is a little jarring. And I, I really empathize deeply with Gainsbourg's transformation in the movie, like her turning into the monster she believes herself to be out of this intense yeah. grief. But there's an implication in the movie that she's always been evil in the second half, kind of like a twist, which I, mm. I think at best muddies the waters of what the movie's trying to say, and at worst is just misogyny. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and like, it doesn't look too good after Bjork's statements about working with Von Trier on yeah. Dancer in the Dark, but I think those carbs aside, I, I, it is really grimly compelling, you know, and I think a lot of that is on Defoe and Gainsbourg performances, which are just so raw and brave, and not just because 
they're naked physically for a lot of the movie, but emotionally naked. That like mm. you kind of have to recommend. Like it's 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 an amazing portrait of grief for at least yeah. its first half. I know that face are delighted and proud to be sponsored by the podcast 180 Degrees. What do you know about sustainable energy? What does being energy efficient actually mean? How is energy research influencing government policy? 180 Degrees is a podcast answering these important questions by sharing the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. They chat to the people who are making a real difference in the areas of sustainable transport, energy in the home, and in our communities. They hear how businesses and public sector bodies are cutting carbon emissions, and how energy research is informing policy decisions. 180 Degrees is brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. It is great, wholesome content. Subscribe to 180 Degrees wherever you get podcasts, and go check out their latest episode when we're done talking to folks. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. The World According to Wikipedia is a podcast that pops the hood of Wikipedia and invites you to take a look inside. Each episode, we will talk to someone from the Wikimedia community on topics like why are only 18% of biographies about women? Can editing Wikipedia be a protest or activism? And what is it like for the communities working on the 200 plus Wikipedias that are not in English? Subscribe on your podcast of choice and follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia. And now, back to the show. Yeah, speaking of grief, let's, uh, let's talk about John Wick. Willem Dafoe plays Marcus, an over-the-hill assassin who acts as a kind of father figure and old mentor to the retired master assassin, John Wick, played by Keanu Reeves and eventually assists him in his one-man war on Viggo Tarasov, who's played by Michael Nyquist, whose son, uh, Josef Tarasov, uh, who's played by Alfie Allen, kills the dog uh, John Wick's dead wife sent to him after her death. I feel like the John Wick film series for me is a film, is a series that where the, the little details really make the movies pop for me. Totally. And there aren't that many of them in the first... Uh, Film like there's the gold coins, obviously, and the the Continental, which is the hotel where all this the assassins kind of do business and whatever. But it's also like the little character details that they have as well. So like Marcus uh, Defoe's character is like offers um, Vigo Tarasov a drink when he uh, comes to visit him and offers him the bounty on John Wick before he makes go public. Vigo's like, yeah, sure, I'll take a drink, and he gives him carrot juice that he's been <laughs> blending. And uh, like the bit where the bit where Marcus uh, makes the decision to uh, help John Wick instead of uh, killing him from his sniper's perch, he like warns him that uh, Perkins, the female, the one I think the one female assassin in this in this movie, uh, has just come in behind him. So he shoots the pillow by his head and saves him that way. And then as he's packing up to leave, he like he licks his fingers like he would before he turned the page of a book or a newspaper and twists the silencer off off of his rifle oh and I God. think that it, it's just one of those details that you're like yeah it feels like something a 55 year old assassin would do it sounds hot as well <laughs> uh, I didn't get that but um, sure whatever you're into Stephen no. and it's like the first in the trilogy so the world never feels as deep as it does in John Wick 2 but I think the kind of roughness of the first film like it's caught between obviously wanting to be more than like a post taken thriller and uh, but it still has one foot in the kind of taken 
B-movie action kind of genre stuff. And that's what kind of what gives it the first film its charm. I think um, it's quite the first film is quite serious in its tone, and I think Marcus is one of the only ones who has both feet rooted in that tone. Uh, in terms of like the dialogue he's given and just the performance that Defoe gives, whereas nearly every other character gets kind of like a joke or an exaggerated monologue about how like how John Wick is a demon that will hunt them <laughs> down and kill them. Yeah, but John Wick Two is definitely where I fell in love with this franchise. But there is always a pleasure in just seeing Willem Defoe be Willem Defriend. That's true. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah, truly Willem Defriend in this film. Will we talk about Doggy Dog? We talked about Defoe's collaborations with Schrader, um, Light Super, and Affliction in the last step, and and he, I think, he's probably Defoe's most frequent collaborator. And Defoe has a lot of frequent collaborators. I, yeah. I feel like he's got such a good reputation where pretty much every time he works with a director, he shows up in another of that director's movies. Yeah. Um, but like, I think Schrader's the one that's happened the most with because he's in 2002's Autofocus, which is an amazing true crime film based on a Robert Graysmith of the Zodiac case uh, book. Oh. Um, there was also The Walker, Adam Resurrected, and Doggy Dog, which I rewatched for this. And I, sh- I should say, I went to see Schrader talk at the Irish premiere of First Reformed, and the impression I got was that while First Reformed to him was his big return to form and that he was very proud of, that Doggy Dog, which was the movie prior, was what got him his mojo back, especially yeah. after the troubled productions of The Canyons and Dying of the Light. And it feels like he really had carte blanche on Doggy Dog and was very free in a way that he wasn't for... The last couple of movies yeah it's this like hyperkinetic, natural born killers crank style-esque film about three former prisoners um two of which are played by nicholas cage and Willem defoe who are hired to kidnap a baby and share a big ransom payment and again like wild at heart it's defoe out caging cage what's very interesting to me about doggy dog is how how much irresponsible fun trader is having behind the camera swapping from like black and white to color slow-mo to sped up footage dream sequences and all these like weird takes to capture Mm. like the character's sort of unhinged mania but at the same time he never for a second makes them look cool or glorifies them in any way like these people suck (laughs) and Schrader (laughs) knows it and like there's this amazing recurring visual gag where the camera will do a kind of close-up on Cage's face as he says something kind of cool and the camera will just cut to a wide for just a few extra seconds until there's silence and it's really awkward and just sits in it and it really undercuts the cool thing <laughs> it's such a funny recurring gag I've never seen it before in a movie and it, because it's about these people who think they're cool and they're not and on Defoe like the movie begins with a clip from a talk show where someone says the more people that have guns the safer the world is and then we we hard cut to Defoe character Mad Dog on coke on a coke and heroin bender in the home of a single mom he seduced and is crashing with this is before he murders her and her kid after the mom tried to kick him out of the house because she he watched porn on her laptop <laughs> And you are just like, yeah, this person definitely should not have a gun. <laughs> yeah, even if you had any doubt of what Schrader thinks of him, Schrader shows up in the movie playing Cage's go-between for big jobs yeah. and tells him about Mad Dog. Just keep him away from me. <laughs> and it's almost like Schrader respects the sort of vigilante in Taxi Driver or the contemplative drug dealer in Light Sleeper because the, those people have a code of sorts mm, where yeah. he really hates the stupidity and pointlessness of the criminals like Mad Dog and the violence they inflict, the senseless yeah. violence. And even Cage's last line of the movie signals this saying, I thought I wanted justice. Turns out I just wanted what I wanted. 
Which is <laughs> <laughs> like it's like perfect. And Defoe, yeah. Defoe's great at owning how much of an idiot and how pathetic Mad Dog is. Like he really throws himself into it with reckless abandon and no concern for his image at all. Like the stuff mm-hmm. Mad Dog says in this movie is like reprehensible but also feels very authentic and I'm also not sure how many actors of Defoe's star power would play a character who has a meltdown after not being able to get an erection during uh, a massage with a happy ending like he's just a, he's an incredibly daring actor in that respect but but he also like no, never enough to redeem his character but like he gives him slivers of a kind of vulgar poeticism a lot of which i think is uh, i imagine comes from the source material which was written by um career criminal edward bunker who appeared in reservoir dogs oh there's this whole bit where he he can't get over the feel of carpet on his bare feet because he's so used to concrete from prison and it's this great monologue that's very like kind of what he's saying is sort of gross but you're like I get, I get the feel I get how important this mean, yeah. this is to you and there's, yeah. a, there's a bit where he says to someone like I know you don't like me I get it sometimes I don't like myself either there's just enough to keep you compelled by his awfulness but never to let you think like this person is like a good person I should probably talk a little bit about, because um, we talked about Posh Raider, his other frequent collaborators, Abel Ferrara. I have seen Gogo Tales, Pasolini, and Tommaso, uh, the latter two fairly recently, so I can talk about them. And, you know, when I interviewed Abel Ferrara, which I still can't believe happened, when I chatted to him about what he thought it was that kept Defoe going back, he was a little vague about it. He's not the most loquacious fellow, but he, yeah. he talked about their collaborations of like being connected, and he said, We're working towards something. I don't know what. But it's something. I hope it's something. And I was thinking about this, and I feel like Gogo Tales, Pasolini, Tommaso, and I assume Siberia, which is sounds very personal, are Ferrer's way of talking about how he sees himself and his art, with Defoe being his on-screen avatar. Yeah. Because yeah. Defoe goes from playing a failing strip club owner, struggling to keep his establishment open with the help of all his um, friends and the people who depend on the club to live in Gogo Tales, which could be seen as, you know, an analogue for Ferrara trying to continue to make movies with all his frequent collaborators on a lower budget. And um, I haven't seen 444, as I said, but then the foe goes to playing one of Ferrara's filmmaking heroes, the controversial Italian filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini, in Pasolini, yeah. um, where in his final days he's questioned about why he makes films, and he says... I think I would make films even if I was the last free man. Maybe I would make films because I need to. I like it. I feel like it. So I do it. I, I either kill myself or I do it. I, I make films. That way I express myself. If my expression is alienated, so what? At least I'm expressing myself as free as possible. Which feels like both what Pasolini would say, but also what Ferrara would say about yeah. his movies. And then he makes Tommaso, where Defoe plays an American filmmaker recovering from addiction issues, living in Rome. That's like Ferrara's story. And he's yeah. op- playing it opposite Ferrara's real-life family. And it's a movie that's so achingly personal that we even see Defoe's character prepping Ferrara's next film, Siberia, in it. <laughs> and as I said earlier, when I, like earlier this year when I talked to Ferrara about Tommaso what really blew me away it like it feels like Ferrara taking a hard look at himself it's a drama about a person that's life is ideal on the surface like young daughter beautiful wife gorgeous house and surroundings but there's a tension running through it a bomb but the bomb is sort of Tommaso himself and whether he can whether he'll relapse whether he can keep this up and can he can he maintain the life and it's really beautiful and raw and personal and it also ends with a playful nod to another classic film starring Willem Dafoe 
uh, which we've talked on the podcast, which I won't spoil. Um, so for fans of him, definitely check it out. But I just love that like Defoe has brought out a more sensitive side in Ferrara, and yeah. vice versa. Yeah, like, he won't. He's a long way from the driller killer. Yeah, exactly. And like, but also like Ferrara has allowed Defoe a space to play real people, like not psychopaths or crazy people. Yeah. It's kind of amazing to see, and it's. I just love how like they seem to be really good friends. Like they're neighbors for like most of the year, like together in Rome. They have a flat yeah. near each other. It's great. I love it. I'm so invested in it. There's a documentary that played this year called Sporting Life, which is about their relationship. So um, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Do you want to do Lighthouse? What's a Timberman want with being a wiki? <laughs> we were on the brakes. A mutiny, it were. Why ask you why? What's the terrible part? Of a sailor's life, ask you lad. Tis when the work stops when you're twixt wind and water. Doldrums, doldrums, eviler than the devil. Boredom makes men to villains, and the water goes quick, lad. Vanished. The only medicine is drink. Keeps them sailors happy, keeps them agreeable, keeps them calm, keeps them stupid. So he plays Thomas Wake, who is an aging and irritable lighthouse keeper who, along with Thomas Howard, played by Robert Pattinson, finds himself trapped in a lighthouse off the coast of Maine as a never-ending storm drives both men to madness. So yeah, he's this character written, who he got in contact with uh, Robert Eggers, who directed The Lighthouse and The Witch, after he, after he saw The Witch and said, be great to work with you sometime, let me know if you uh, ever need my skills. And so Eggers wrote... Uh, the character of Thomas Wake with Defoe in mind, and like it's hard to imagine anyone else uh, having these kind of craggy, bring it, being able to bring these kind of craggy features and voice to uh, this kind of old salty sea dog with poor manners, a bad leg, and even worse flatulence. <laughs> the flatulence is just yeah, it's so it's and, so strong. Yeah, and like I prefer the witch over um, the lighthouse. Um, I feel like in a way this is kind of Robert Eggers uh, Us like it's like a film with too many vaguely explored themes struggling to make its point but it's so entertaining that these thematic pitfalls are kind of hard to care about at the end of the day mm, yeah. yeah like like there's so many themes running through the light there's alcoholism there's homoeroticism um, there's like the Greek mythology and then there's like the whole like Freudian double kind of thing going on and it never finds, like, it never ties all these threads together, or it never even ties up one thread. Um, and that's kind of, that's what I find disappointing about the film. But all of the kind of really, like, all this really quotable, chewable dialogue, and the set design, the production design, and the fact that it's in black and white in, like, the Academy ratio, and the constant droning foghorn make this film I just keep kind of coming back to that more than anything else like I don't care I don't care what the film's about at the end of the day I'm glad you pointed it out because I think it's brilliance and it's flaw is the fact that you could read the movie as a lot of different things I I think it's mostly a sort of Pinter-esque the servant kind of story about shifting power dynamics yeah but like it's also like a story about 
you know, repressed trauma and guilt coming to the surface, a, a sailor's parable come to life, a Lovecraftian horror about an evil lighthouse, a portrait of toxic masculinity and repressed homosexuality. It's all those things, but at the same time, it's kind of nothing because it never ties yeah. off any of those things. And the, I, as you said, the, movie, the reason the movie works is just because, like, those performances are so strong and Eggers' command of the material is so yeah. great and the atmosphere that they sort of unify those yeah. loose ends to so that the whole feels a lot more substantial than the yeah. the sum of its parts. Yeah, and um, I, I think like Defoe and Panson are just amazing at delivering those kind of spit speckled intense monologues and yeah. also during those like uproarious scenes of them like uh, drunk dancing or like <laughs> drinking kerosene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a weird movie. I just love its weirdness. I do agree yeah. that I think The Witch is a, a better film and I, I'm very excited for The Northman which I think also features Defoe, right? Yeah. Will we talk about um, can I talk about Mother's Brooklyn? I can kind of take it as a duo with The Last Thing He Wanted, because they're both sort of similar kind of crime thrillers, homages to an old style of filmmaking. Yeah, as he said, like, like, Defoe will do these crime thrillers, and occasionally you'll get, like, a masterpiece, like, Inside Man. Less successful, but still good, is Mudless Brooklyn, uh, which was directed and starring Edward Norton. It came out last year. Norton plays a PI in New York in the 1950s with Tourette's Syndrome and OCD, who tries to solve the murder of his mentor, played by Bruce Willis. Uh, Bruce Willis became embroiled in a scheme involving African-American neighborhoods being screwed over by a villainous commissioner played by Alec Baldwin. Yeah, Defoe plays this bearded, unhinged character. He's someone introduced shouting at Baldwin's character in a town hall meeting who Norton's (laughs) P.I. tracks down and Defoe's the kind of stock character you see in a lot of these noir movies who lays out all the important plot details of like who the baddie of the piece is. But, But he makes it so electric because he's like, in the scene like he's eating dinner while ordering dessert and dropping tons of information <laughs> like building up Baldwin who's a Baldwin, Baldwin's like amazing and what this broken building up as this like re, a person you really don't want to fuck with like a sort of John yeah. Houston in Chinatown-esque figure all while chastising Norton for not knowing any of this and being like you're not gonna take this down all this stuff because <laughs> Edward Norton is pretending that he's a journalist uh, it's it's yeah. really great his intensity and shyness and kind of curmudgeonly nature actually reminded me a lot of his lighthouse turn but there's also some like emotional stuff there too because Norton later uncovers about like halfway through the movie that Defoe's character is actually Baldwin's brother who was this engineering prodigy and Baldwin basically ruined his life over a dispute they had and that dispute is what's connected to Bruce Willis's death. And once yeah. he learned that about yeah, you know, halfway through the movie it adds like a melancholy to Defoe's character that, that this person went from being so promising to the type of guy that when a pi asks him to buy him a coffee to talk to him he's like so you can buy me dinner probably because he doesn't have any money yeah <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean i will say mother's brooklyn was a passion project for norton that took 20 years to get to the screen and it's it's two hours and 20 minutes and it, it's so rich in detail and it, fe- it feels like norton just kept plussing it over 20 years being like oh i want to cover this i want to cover that yeah, i want to cover yeah. that and the result is a movie which feels like a big good meal where you eat too much and feel a little bloated after because there's the character study of a pi with tourette's and ocd and you know all this political stuff about the institutionalized racism and new york in the 50s and like some of the details as well are are loosely connected based on real life and that's it that would be enough but then there's also michael k williams is a miles davis-esque trumpet player who has a heart-to-heart with Norton about his Tourette's basically being like, I get it, man. And there's Leslie Mann as Bruce Willis's femme fatale wife who's having an affair with Norton's boss, played by Bobby Cannavale. There's Defoe 
the Baldwin stuff, and it's all good on its own, but it doesn't coalesce, and the pacing is a little baggy. But yeah, yeah. I do like it though. I, I think it's a little underrated. Occasionally, as well, you get like something like Inside Man and Mother's Broken. Then you'll get you might get a bad movie like the last yeah. thing you wanted. His commitment to these like old school crime thrillers doesn't really pay off here. Um, it's this Netflix movie based on Joan Didion book starring Anne Hathaway, which. I don't think it's quite as terrible as people say. It has like five percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is a, which I think is mean. I don't think it's that bad, yeah. but it's a, it is a bit of a dud. Um, yeah. Anne Hathaway plays a journalist who stops her coverage of the nineteen eighty four U.S. presidential election to care for her dying father, played by Willem Dafoe, and she ends up inheriting his position as an arms dealer for Central America and winds up deep <laughs> in a real life political scandal. And um, it's directed by the usually very acclaimed D. Reese and. This is a thing which I feel keeps happening with Netflix films where with established directors they greenlight scripts that are simply not ready to be made based on the filmmaker's reputation. So you get stuff like Duncan Jones's Mute or yeah. Steven Sonderberg's The Laundromat or even, and I, I, we're fans of this movie, but like Jeremy Saunier's Hold the Dark is one yeah. script polish away from being a masterpiece. And exactly, it's so yeah, frustrating, yeah. you know? Yeah. And the, the last thing you want that starts off very promising, I actually quite like Hathaway's performance as this ambitious reporter, single mom, cancer survivor who gets in to gun running to save her dad and ends up sticking around for the big scoop. And I didn't think she could muster up the sort of weathered quality yeah. Yeah. that her character needed, but I was proven wrong, like, credit where it's due. But like, the, I think the problem is sort of everything else. Like, It's a film which is trying to ape these paranoid 70s political thrillers like the conversation or blowout and where everything's very shadowy and you never really get the full picture yet those movies work because they always give viewers just enough to latch onto while keeping the grander scheme ambiguous and they're also character studies first and foremost and so that even those things that you never really learn are sort of secondary to the story of like gene hackman in the conversation yeah yeah. and the the, the last thing you wanted is just like straight up confusing what begins feeling like mysterious and shadowy just becomes inept direction and writing yeah. as it continues because you, you never really know in the moment what Hathaway's doing and why she's doing it and once she ends up in Costa Rica on the gun deal there's so many scenes of Hathaway seeing something looking like she's realised something like come to this grand realisation and fleeing we have no idea what she's <laughs> realised <laughs> and, and the film hops around to so many other characters like there's Ben Affleck playing this sort of shady government spook or Rosie Perez who's this colleague of Hathaway's that you sort of lose that interiority and subjectivity that something like The Conversation has or even Blowout yeah. and like even something like American Made like something as frothy and fun as that Tom Cruise movie which we talked about okay, Landry Jones episode that's set in the same time period and is about the same topic and does such a better job at critiquing 80s America and showing how sinister it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but, and I think, like, on Defoe, though, the, the last thing he wanted is noteworthy because it's only good for exactly how long he's on screen. Because once his character goes to hospital and dies, like, the movie goes from decent to, oh, boy. And he, <laughs> he he's playing, like, Hathaway's absentee father, who is this large and light, very genial and irreverent figure. His style is great. Sunglasses indoors, burgundy suit. It's a real Sunglasses look. Sunglasses indoors. It's legit. <laughs> listen to our jeffrey wright episode for that um yeah. for that reference there's a great bit where she's talking about how what a bad dad he was because she couldn't even apply for financial aid to go to college because he wouldn't list his profession on the form because he couldn't put gun dealer <laughs> and 
It's through his scenes, um, you really learn about Hathaway's personal struggles that I mentioned earlier, which I think are the most interesting thing about the movie. And their scenes together are full of this sort of ball busting. They're ball busting each other, but there's this really familiarity and like love underneath that really grounds the movie emotionally. Something that I think gets lost after he dies. Yeah. So it's, it's not great. Yes, any grander thoughts about Defoe before we wrap up? He's the best. Like, we, like, I think we did him justice. Yeah. Yeah, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Email us at I know that face pod at gmail.com. If you, you know, would like to be on the show, you're someone who works in film or media or podcasts and, you know, would like to talk about any character actors in particular, um, follow us at Twitter at I know that face P1. Follow us on Instagram at I know the face. Thank you again for Shani Fernandez for running the Instagram and for editing the podcast. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. You can find me at you know the Headstuff Film section. Also, I'm going to throw this out there. Follow me on Letterboxd. Follow me at Portfolio. See you later, Cinepositive. Bye-bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.